ACSU Stanford. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show. It's always about ideas and land, housing, and more. Today, specifically, it's going to be about Henry George and Georgism. We have on the program Chris Beiser. Chris Beiser is on to talk, at the beginning at least, about memes. Things seem a lot more uh, serious from there. Talking about ideology and how they evolve and move in the world today. Let's get on things. And welcome, Chris. All right. Hello. Yeah, so uh, would you say, I'm not sure, claim to fame would be right, but one thing you do is uh, you, you run the uh, Facebook account, uh, George's Memes for Land Value Taxation Teens. Uh, and the obvious question is, why, why do you do this? Yeah, so uh, the the... There are there are there are other Georgist meme groups on Facebook. You know, of course I think, there are. I think there's a, a bigger one. Geo libertarian memes is uh, is maybe maybe twice the size. Uh, the th- the thing that is I think unique about Georgist memes for land value taxation. There's two things. One is that I just produce a lot of content there. Yeah, right? I just great great original original <laughs> memes. Original uh, artwork. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, also ideas. They contain ideas and contain right, art. Right. Um, and the the other thing is that I think the the majority of the uh, George's meme Facebook groups are they they tend explicitly towards the geo libertarian side of things. Sure. So it's it's less about uh, the it's less about the abstract economic theory and it's more about this concrete version of it. In which it must be, you know, you cannot have liberty unless you have land value taxation. And it kind of comes from a very strong case of natural rights theory. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, John Locke was right, but we have to respect John Locke explicitly and not go off the rails. Bingo. Yeah, which Bingo. is like, but most people are like, I'm not sure I really need to take John Locke seriously. I, mean, I think it's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we can, I think we can do without. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so I guess when we jumped into memes, uh, it is it is 2019. Uh, are are memes? Is it a good or bad thing that memes are so important right now? You know, I think I think one thing that we're seeing is that the uh, control over over the over the, the formative contexts. You know, all, all of the really all of the political action that we're seeing has been getting closer to the memes, right, and closer to the novel memes. Uh, both in the liter- you know the the image macro sense and the the grander idea of what a meme is, you know the, the memes are obviously they're moving much faster than they used to, right? Yeah, you know I, I think the if you look at the start of the you know if you look at the year two thousand, right, which is like I think where we were when we could last imagine that this is a world that, that is still controlled by you know terrestrial broadcast memes, right? You know I I think. When you, the, there's been such a rapid shift, right? You see the neoconservatives just, you know, vanishing. You see, you know, you see the the rise of populist movements. You see, you know, uh, a resurgent left. It's it's hard for me to see that in any way other than that, you know, once once you you start applying faster feedback mechanisms, right, um, to this to this quote unquote idea marketplace. Uh, the, the what were the dominant many of these dominant forms just got out competed. In some sense, there isn't so much of a culture and a counterculture as much as 
everything is deeply, deeply fragmented. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, one, one thing I, I thought was interesting, I, I, I'm reading uh, or just recently read uh, Dwight McDonald. Uh, you know, he probably he might be so, more famous in a lot of ways for producing like a, a magazine of a circulation of a couple hundred in the early 40s, yeah. uh, early to mid 40s. Uh, late to late forties uh, called politics, uh, but it's funny to hear him write about kind of what the marketplace of ideas was then, because everything there was more or less homogeny. There was a, a, a well organized left, but he was not part of the well organized left. He actually broke for the left. He was part of the Shackmanites, which were a very kind of a, a sect of the uh, of the Trotskyites, and then he was like writing about the Shaktamites broke off to the Westbordites, which eventually was one guy just on a mimeograph machine, and he was just that Incredible. was that was that was the weapon of the age for ideas was mimeographing your own weird screeds as fast as you can and pumping them out there, and I mean in that case these people are just you can ignore them, but right now. Like if they if they had the internet, who knows what the idea marketplace would have been back then? The technology makes such a big difference about how these ideas can spread and be communicated. Oh yeah, and and even even with you know everyone everyone talks about you know Russian state sponsored ideology, uh, and and there's there's obviously there's something there, but when you look at uh, where we were versus you know 15 years ago, I think that the degree to which ideology is state run, right? It is. It has just been plummeting. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, we even people who are you know nonconformists were almost by definition normies because like it take it took so much effort. It's funny to read like people real counterculture in the eighties. It's like it's like boy, what they're referencing is stuff like any eighth grader knows knows right, now. Right. And it's it's in in some sense you could say that you know uh, yeah it 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 kind of mutates faster and faster. Right, and th- this is this is why I love thinking about the uh, the neocons. Is that uh, you know you can if you if you wrote you know some of the some of the stuff that was used to justify the Iraq War, right? You you write it today, you publish it in the New York Times op-ed section, and then you go on Twitter.com, right? Yeah. Like the the reaction there is just going to be brutal, right? You're just going to be made fun of, you're going to be wrecked, you're going to be you know dragged all over, and and in that context. You know things that people may have been able to feel were were you know reasonable, just they're not there anymore. And I think the media has, I think, for better or for worse, say a lot of ways, uh, for the worse, has been the gatekeepers. If you want to get your ideas out there, you you pay your dues, oh, yeah. you work your way up, and eventually you're part of the op-ed, and, and more or less it's part of a structure of there's a few people who represent the left, people who represent the right, and. You know, I mean, you talk about someone like Buckley making a splash yeah. in the conservative ideology of the fifties. He did it by creating his own, you know, media presence and doing it. But you know, I it's it, I don't think it was as big a break in a lot of ways than what is possible now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the other thing is that uh, I think more or less coincidentally, um, we have hit this point. You look at you look at ideologies, right? And you know, everyone goes, uh, you know. What happened to communism, right? In the in the Marxist-Leninist sense, right? And you can say, well, it looked pretty good in 1915, right? And then by like 1980, you know, no one believed in it anymore. One thing that you have happen is is this kind of, uh, you know, as an ideology goes through its lifespan, right? There's a there's a rise, right? And the rise is you you have you have this ideology, and the, the the fundamental idea of an ideology is that if you believe in it, right, the things it promises will come true. Uh, and and once you 
you know, and so the in the Russian case, you know, they take the Bolsheviks come in, they take the land. It, it looks it looks kind of good for a year or two, and and at some point, you know, the the party has centralized control enough that they're able to produce ideological narratives. Um, and they keep this up for quite a while. And it's also worth you know saying how much the ideology reflects the power structures of the time. Oh, yeah. When it started out, it wasn't until like 28 or so that Stalin had consolidated power and that his form of state control in a lot of ways was consolidating his power, which which was you know, the dog wagging the tail or vice versa. I'm not really sure I would consider Stalin a great ideologue as much as a great practitioner of power. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I study the... Um, Chinese Communist Party a lot. And the, the thing that's fascinating to me is that they're, if you ask the Chinese Communist Party what, what went wrong in Russia, right? Because they're, they're always concerned about maintaining power, maintaining control. And this is asking them today. Today. In their right. form. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, really any time in the last 15, 20 years, and everyone expects them to say, you know, it was opening up that did it. It was, and, and it's not. The Chinese Communist Party, they go, the person who ruined the the Soviet Union was Khrushchev. <laughs> as right. a, as it's not Gorbachev. It's it's Khrushchev because Khrushchev went and he, he destroyed this kind of mythic image of, you know, that they could uphold the even even if it's if it's uh, distorted, that they could uphold this myth. And that's what Orwell saw before Stalin died, which is if you could have a totalitarian cult of personality about an immortal figure That'd be pretty effective. <laughs> I think he's not wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you look in a lot of ways, a lot of religions work in that very same same way, right? But uh, the argument here, though, is that when you look at you know, quote unquote, neoliberal capitalism, right? It starts really in in earnest around 1960, right? You you see the the rise of you know. This this grand network of neoliberal think tanks, you know, all citing each other. This is not only when there's a strain of thought, but when it starts to be a serious political presence as well. Right. It 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 begins to, uh, you know, with Reagan with Thatcher, it begins to it makes a play at hegemony. Right. Yeah. It it takes the, uh, and and at that time it has a people people would would read it, they would see it, and they would understand how they believed that it could bring them to a better world. In a lot of ways, it it positioned itself to be effective at a time when a crisis would take place. In that case, was the fall of the Keynesian consensus. Bingo. Uh, yeah, it, when when stagflation really you know really destroyed what we all believed was kind of oh yeah we figured this out you know we, we this is how you do capitalism. Right, and and the thing that's happening now I think is that really you know you've seen this a bit over the last uh, couple of years, but we're really at the point now where. It's it's hard to it's hard to believe it, you know. It's hard to believe that if we if we just you know deregulate, you know, cut the uh, cut taxes, it's you know go down the list, that that will produce a you know the kind of society that that it's promising, right? So one one thing that strikes me as far as as something like this goes is kind of the idea space between what is shallow and what is deep, and in some sense you could talk about every kind of ideology you could talk about kind of the Keynesians versus the monetarists or just kind of the more Thatcherite versus you know old style uh, way of thought and I think you'd say they had like a deep a deep body of work about implementation and oh, yeah. about you know rigorous you know academic stuff but the actual ideas I feel were in a lot of ways 
not battle tested. They were very shallow, kind of top level, front facing ideas. Uh, but you know, they had more. Right, they had the they had the pull, right? And I feel like the way that we live in meme world now, we have incredibly, <laughs> incredibly robust systems of kind of the shallowest ideas, and I just mean kind of the first way it hits you. Yeah. But a lot of people may never read a book on this. Right. So one of the one of the most fascinating things I've found over the last year is that if you look at the Koch brothers, right? Their their grand ideological scheme. The the one of the one of the people involved put out this paper uh, about how they understand the production of ideology through a uh, Hayekian model, right? So the in, in this in this model, ideology is explicitly a form of capital. And 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 there's certain prices that go to to different levels of. I, I mean, ideas? in the sense that, in the sense that the production of ideology, right? You can look at it as a as a thing that has, you know, it has a set of inputs, and the way to ensure that ideology is produced is to make sure that you know each of those stages is being carried through the next one, um, and and so and it's an input output system of producer agents and right. It's, yeah, it's what it, what is the production system. For ideology, and this is something the Koch brothers—they buy into this theory. This is, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I think it's, you know, uh, its origins. Its origins be uh, uh, aside. I think it's a, it's an incredibly powerful model, actually, because once you know, ideal as a, as a form of capital. Once you've produced it, right? If you produce it in the forms you want, and you have the economic power to harvest on it. Uh, you can turn ideology back into profit, hmm. right? I mean, in some sense, do you? And I feel like is this a useful question? As far as me hearing about the Cokes, as far as what they believe, I've always I've always heard like they, when they were young, heard like a grow the pie theory of you know kind of economic growth, and says, yeah. by golly, that's a great thing to do. And like their story is, and they made it happen. Their entire life has been about chasing this this youthful dream of growing the pie. And, I mean, do you think that is the kind of convenient myth to put out there, or do you think that's actually a, a, a fair model to say what what they actually believe? I think when you get to a certain level of wealth, the, the ability to delude yourself is is maybe the most <laughs> most valuable thing you can get, right? And there are plenty of people, you know, you can pay to do it for you. Yeah, I mean, and there I guess there are two things. Yeah, it's like... The pure materialists believe that ideology has no no real meaning. It only is a way to solidify and give rationalizations of power structures yeah. of of who controls. I I I I think it's always worthwhile to say there's a lot of truth in that. But I tend to really believe that ideas, in some sense, do change the world. Sometimes is is that is is that naive? No, no. I, I think that's I think that's totally fair. I think that what we're looking at right now, though, is the um, there's a there's a power there, not a power vacuum, but an ideology vacuum, right? Yeah. Now that now that the neoliberal consensus has fallen, you know, no one is no one has really resuscitated a particularly particularly powerful uh, ideology from the left, right? Yeah. I mean, you you see some, you know. Some decent decent work there, but um, it's not competing against the uh, the toughest field, right? And in some sense, you say like what has driven the left not only for the past you know couple decades of kind of rough third wayism, but even for you know really for 
a century almost, oh, there yeah. has not really been a really coherent ideology behind it. Yeah, and and I think um, I really do think a lot of it falls to um, just the inability to walk away from Marx. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so it is really interesting. Like, uh, like a hundred a hundred years ago, I mean, I remember Jack London, who is a Bay Area resident, yeah. o- Oakland dude. Uh, virulent racist. Uh, I mean, interesting guy in a lot of different ways. Uh, but he was writing into Oakland Tribune with when someone wrote a pro Henry George thing, and he was. Yeah. It sounded like he was the minority saying it's like, well, I mean, you make some good points, but I think you're overlooking the fact that you know aggregation of capital, and I think you have to check this Karl Marx dude out. <laughs> and what's funny is he spelled Karl Marx with a C uh, for Karl, <laughs> which is wild. But yeah. uh, and like it's it's just boy, you know, uh, and. You know, at that point, you know, this is the Bolsheviks are like a couple hundred people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like you have to wonder, like, how many things, you know, would change for a very different world of, of how oh, yeah. ideologies developed. Oh, yeah. And and if you look at, you know, um, outside of Russia, right, uh, other, other developmental cases, right, you look at South Korea or you look at Singapore or you look at Taiwan, there is this very strong Georgist influence, right? In in um, in Taiwan's case, you know Sun Yat-sen, you know his, he's got this book Memoirs of a Chinese Revolutionary, right? And he goes, uh, as for you know, as for taxation, we will do uh, Henry George's thing, and we will, uh, and and he proposes a, a harbinger tax, you know, because he goes the 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 lands the lands all basically the same. Right? The three the three principles of the people, right? The and- three <laughs> principles, and one of the, you know number two is Georgism, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> He's got these three principles, right? It's it's democracy, it's uh, nationalism, and it's socialism. And when he says socialism, what he means is, you know, he, he writes, it's it's Henry George. It's you know, put in a harborage tax on you know close to the full value of the land. In some sense, you could say nationalism might sound like. Nationalism today can be a lot about division, and that says actually was let's have less you know kind of warring packs and actually look at pan Chinese fusion across all of our peoples. And I mean, yeah, it, it, it means a very different thing. Yeah, that, it's, yeah. It's, that's 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 a meaningful clarification. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's yeah, but it was one of the three principles, right? And then and then you look at uh, you know in in Singapore. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, I don't, I don't know that he ever read George, but he was highly influenced by, uh, you know, a British learned society, and while they were, uh, while they were writing, they were, you know, they went, they went through like this twenty-year Georgist phase, yeah, and all their, all their writings, uh, essentially, they got shipped off to Singapore, right, because Singapore was a, a British colony at the time. And and you read, you know, him do speeches on when they were starting to buy back land at lower assessed oh, yeah. rates. And he doesn't say anything about Henry George or land value tax, but he does talk about just, you know, something we all accept is the fact that there is no right to the windfall profit of land increases. Yep. It's like, yep. I mean, you could say like, okay, we all agree. I mean, in around here, it's 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 kind of the opposite yeah. was built into the American yeah. dream in the homeownership society in that sense. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's very funny how like I think in some ways it, it it is still in the ideological character of so many places, even right. without uh, being explicit. And these these places, Taiwan and Singapore, are the places that are the hardest to put in the whole 
capitalist yeah. socialist yeah. thing, which is a common game. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Is it's, Sweden socialism? <laughs> it's is like Norway socialism? Yeah, if that's hard, uh, yeah, and trying to put Singapore in the in yeah. the pool. Insofar as there is some sort of dominance, that when you take certain ideology, and it tends to work out well for cities. As, yeah. And let's compare this to the fact you take conservative ideologies and you apply it to Kansas, and then you have things saying like, oh, why does this level of, of inspiring, uh, you know, inspiring uh, innovation by detaxing everything, why doesn't this work? I mean, do you think that this is in a certain way is a marketplace of different taxation ideas and will have a natural evolution for what works the best? Or is what works the best maybe isn't what works the best for the government side as much as it just increases outcomes for residents? You know, I don't I don't think we have right now, at least it it doesn't feel like we have a particularly tight loop around, you know, the the responses to taxation, you because the effects are are in any given year so weak uh you know, I, I don't think we see it, you know, impacting in, the, in quite that direct a way. And I think one issue I see is I think people who are most uh, willing to take on change are the people who do not like the idea of treating our governments as laboratories. Yeah. Whereas well, the people who are, there's kind of a technocratic appetite for that among people who want to iterate tightly in somewhere in the oh, middle, yeah. but don't want to take on anything truly uh, radical, certainly. Right. And I, I think part of this is that uh, in the U.S. especially, we have lost the capability as as the government has centralized on the federal level, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that states can meaningfully experiment uh, is less and less true. And I think you've there's a there's a loss there. And I, I don't I don't know that it's necessarily a uh, unavoidable loss either. I mean, I, I think when people say it's like oh yeah let let states do what they want it's like oh yeah you want to see the you know the governor of mississippi become a you know petty tyrant that just has like people <laughs> it's just like yeah you are treating in some ways you are treating the actual outcomes in the short term yeah. as as a you know kind of collateral damage of, oh, of yeah. what you get out of the experiments and people are not people are not people willing to are take that on definitely not what i mean i i think one of the most interesting things about the the structure of governance in uh, the People's Republic of China is the uh, that the, when there is a when there is a policy idea that they want to implement, uh, typically what happens is they they bring it to a bunch of people they you know they workshop it, and then they try different versions of it in different areas. You know they they come up with uh, you know they take a province here they take a city here and they say you know just just try and implement it and let's let's see how it goes. Sure. And they wait a couple of years and they come back and they go you know how'd it go? Yeah. Right, and and I don't I don't think this is a model you can do in the U.S. Right, but it's also clear that we're missing out deeply on the ability to to get this kind of insight. There's a certain failure in a greedy algorithm of putting your eggs in one basket. Oh, Insofar yeah. as every time it's a it's really really smart to put your eggs in one basket. I I never I don't have I only have one basket in my trunk. Yeah, you know it's. It, I use less arm. It's, it's all the eggs have the same outcomes. Yeah, it's it's a slam dunk. Of course, you should put your eggs in one basket. You know, and I mean, and of course, until you get to an outcome, you realize, boy, everything just now sucks in the same yeah. way, and we can do nothing about it. And and of course, you you go well, you know, why did this happen? 
must have been, you know, must have been the handle on my basket was wrong, right? And it's about basket design. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, we're talking about we're now in a world where it seems like more things are on the table. But in a lot of ways, it can be, I'm thinking when I hear like Matt Brunig talk about stuff, it feels like he's talking about, of course, you know, we need the most efficient basket. We run things as, let's design the basket. But, you know, it's it, <laughs> what radical new basket design and putting your eggs in it. I think should scare you. Yeah, yeah, and and the the ability to iterate on a ba- you know to test the basket is is we just don't have it. Yeah, in the same way. <laughs> and I mean, and it's it's there are no simple solutions to this because you're looking at not only a lot of policy changes but really a massive rethinking of how politics works in a way that I, I certainly am not going to say I feel very confident that I <laughs> that you should you should start you know throwing stuff out that really is robust and tends to work in order to find these theoretical extra but, experiments. But the, the, the danger is you know that that in a in a monoculture yeah you know the the ability to draw cause and effect just vanishes right sure because you you know you you look at you look at any policy you know, and and any outcome, and you can just you can just kind of draw a line and go this you know this is this sounds plausible, right? Yeah, I don't know if it's my if it's my scene only. I have a skewed idea of the world, but I feel like some of the most authentically radical people, and actually they kind of iterate and actually being able to you know work in that space are people who are urbanists because yeah. urbanism is by definition. A, a small locale test bed. Oh yeah. If you want to put a, together your own subway system, you know, do what you want. If you're San Francisco, you can do your different gauges, do wacky <laughs> stuff. Uh, but I mean, it kind of there. Every new place is localized. Yeah. By that's why it's urbanism. And yeah. I mean, do you think that's true? Do you think urbanists, you know, yeah, really, it, really do? It's that? uh, it's it's it definitely feels like a scale where it's easier to have some optimism. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, talk about uh, Numtot. You know, uh, I am I am actually not not in uh, Numtots these days. Numtots is the uh, new urbanist memes for transit oriented teens. It's a it's another Facebook meme group. It's about uh, three orders of magnitude larger than mine. Yeah, and it feels like it is one of the massive core like centers of what. You know, if you see like the new world of just the stew of memes, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's a hive mind, right? It's, oh, absolutely. It is. It is like this this cybernetic system that that you know produces belief in people. I mean, I am someone who uh, does not log into Facebook, and yet I am very aware of what's going in Numtot <laughs> because it, it <laughs> echoes out through other spaces in which people communicate. Uh, and uh, you, you were describing to me uh, earlier when I was talking to you uh, about like Numtot is it's a much more rapid and brutal form of ideas slamming against ideas. Oh yeah, there's oh, yeah. there's not a lot, of n- there's less and less nuance that really is able to bubble up through. Yeah, it. There there is uh, the 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 things you get is you get what are the what are the lines on which the the discourse is going to happen right it, and and if you if you transgress one of those lines you know it's it's uh you know you've stepped out into the cold and uh and there's a pack of wolves ready for you you know uh, and like i i definitely see 
that what a group stands for can rapidly evolve. Oh yeah, and I mean, so what what are the main battle lines that you were seeing? I mean, you know, it's 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 been it's been probably it's been probably a year since I've left it. I, yeah, it's it's probably not. Uh, <laughs> I've I've I, I don't, sure I don't, I've lost the pulse. Yeah, I don't I don't mean to put you on the spot as the commentator of of what is going on there, but I just think it's it's interesting that people would come in saying this is my tribe, this is the other tribe of ideas, right, and right. Uh, and in some ways you could say that some people are meme warriors and they try to say I am going to elevate my ideas. Right, <laughs> right, know? and 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 the, uh, I mean I, I think that there is. This is something that's really democratic, right? In in some sense, and I think that's that's something that, for all of the for all of the you know, things that we have lost, all of the uh, the hand wringing about the effects of social media and disinformation, I think that it, that it does it does represent some kind of real uh, change in the in the ways in which you know I, I the one of the last times I posted it uh, I. You know, I posted some meme, and and suddenly, you know, California state politics were happening in my you know Facebook notifications, right? Sure. You know, it, the it, I think it, I want to say it was someone from Yimby Action, mm. and it was someone from a tenants uh, organization group. This was back in the. Uh, it may have even been the SB eight two seven drag out that that long ago. Wow. Yeah, and and it was it was, and and they were they were, you know, discussing and arguing about. The policy positions they'd taken, yeah, and what you know, what the responsibilities of these different uh, groups were in the discourse, and and you look at this and you go, if this was if this was nineteen you know, nineteen eighty, yeah, right, you know, I I just got I just got ten ten back and forths in you know in an hour right from these two, and how I- many days would that have taken? Yeah, until you get into like a physical space, that's the only way you actually have something of a real back and forth. And what is going to be the audience for that? Right. How how often do you have a physical back and uh, back and forth between two kind of fringe, you know, pressure groups essentially uh, on a niche issue uh, with an audience of five hundred thousand? And I'll say in the time since that. I have seen so much evolution of the people within the orgs. I'm now seeing the case that I believe the ideology and, you know, kind of a second nature, the people who reflect that are moving much faster than the orgs themselves. Oh, yeah. The political structure of the orgs is the last to catch up, which I think is something to say about the way that our politics reflects ideas is is does not reflect for how fast ideas are evolving. Oh, now. yeah. Because it's now it's like, oh, yeah, that org, that org represents this. It's like, oh, no, you're thinking the org eight months ago. existed, you know, two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's very, it's very, very strange. And it kind of shows that what is maybe politics that comes from old-style organizing or maybe Olinsky-style yeah. organizing does not reflect the fact that uh, – how closely they are tied with the idea space. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, one, one, one side issue, uh, and, I, and I, I will say this as, as a fact, uh, a group that is very good at memes are the Flat Earth people. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and this is not, there's all these kind of goofy people. It's like, oh, yeah, let's play with them. I, I, I know how to find the real people. Uh, and, like, the, the people who are just way, like, really, really in it, they're very good at, at selling their idea and... In fun, 
accessible memes, and they're winning. Yeah, and I think I think what's fascinating about the flat Earth people is that they have such a long intellectual history, right? Yeah, they have they have like you know multiple thousands of years of uh, ideas that they're building. You know, the, the the idea that the Earth is flat itself, you know, that's a that's an easy one, but a lot of them have this really radical empiricism, right? It's if you cannot see it, yeah, you do not believe it. There is, yeah, it's. <laughs> It, it there is a idea of what is the ground floor in the model in which you represent the, right. the universe, uh, and it reminds me of something. I'm, I'm going to go off here. Is you know, Tolstoy at the end of War and Peace is saying, uh, you know, like we we do not see ourselves, we cannot feel ourselves moving on the earth, yeah. so we must learn to like distrust our you our know, senses, our senses, and he says in the same way we feel we have free will. You know, we need yeah. to we need to yeah. learn to distrust the feeling we have free will. Uh, in the same way, you could say people who talk about consciousness say we feel qualia, we feel that there is an existence, and we feel it. It's like there are, there may be good reasons to say that we should distrust the feeling that we feel anything at right. all. Uh, and the flat earthers take a very different appeal, saying if it feels like you're not moving, you probably are aren't moving. Not probably. There's no doubt here. <laughs> there. Uh, and I mean, and there's something too about the fact that all true flat earthers yeah. uh, are fundamentalist Christians, uh, and they will take uh, the gospel. I mean, not, I mean, just all of the Bible yeah. as absolute facts that reflect the fact that, it, and they're re- usually weird readings to say that the Earth is flat. But it's, uh, weird readings are uh, nothing new, right? But there is a weird. It, it's a weird kind of thing of just saying that there is some sort of says, what is your baseline of truth. And uh, in some sense, a true religious conclusion is the fact that you reach a point of no doubt. Right. And let me let me ask you this. Is there a uh, among the flat earthers? Is there a uh, an idea of a of a victory? You know, is there a is there somewhere where believing in flat earth will get us all? The most I heard, and this is probably in some podcast, is the sense of wonder. Things like all these people, you know, they believe that, you know, they know what Antarctica is. You know, it's 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 an island. It's boring. I, you know, but we know it's an ice wall. What's on the other side? We don't know, and that's yeah. so cool. We don't know what's on the other side. It could be anything, is, uh, and that's what you know. And it's part of God's plan. <laughs> and I think this is it's one one incredible <laughs> way to get out of uh, capitalist realism. You know. Yeah, but I guess I guess, and this kind of goes to shallow and deep thought. Uh, in you know. 30, 40 years ago, there were flat earthers. They were a couple weirdos. Yeah. No one treated them seriously, and they had very little ability to spread. And also, if you actually go into flat earth theory, they are more coherent than you think, but not that coherent, and none of them could write a book which would convince anybody. Yeah. Uh, but now we're in a world where no one reads books. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I guess I, so. that's a question for you in a lot of ways. Is it still – what is – should we still expect people to say you need to get out of shallow thought into deep thought, read some actual you – know, Right. Yeah. Right. So I've, I've been looking closely at, the, uh, at this empirically, right? And what you see with truly new ideologies that kind of spring out of nowhere, out of the work of one person, over the last couple of years, uh, you, have, uh, you have the neo-reactionaries who are – you know, they're – 
I don't have any good words about them, but what they did very successfully... Which came out of the dark enlightenment right, ideas, well, mold buggy. Mold bug, right. Yeah. What mold bug did was he put together this eight-part series, right? It's just eight blog posts. Stick eight blog posts in a row. Yeah. Make them each, you know, 5,000 words. Link one to the next. Make them separate enough that you can have a reason to link one of them. And this is, you know, it's it's it's... It adds up to maybe it's 60 pages, maybe it's 100 pages, maybe it's 40 pages. It's a modern manifesto in that sense. Right. Uh, but having it disencapsulated this way, for some reason, you know, it, it, it's less daunting. It's more approachable. Uh, and you see this as well with uh, uh, Eliezer Yukowski and his, you know, his sequence he's got. This is the rationalist sequence. The rationalist, and uh, which is which is not a not so much a political ideology, but it is in a sense the same the same appeal to. Uh, you can see it a lot, like creating a cult, right? Yeah, and, and I I think it's interesting the way that he structured David Chapman with his post rationalist project of meaningless. Uh, yeah. It is a hypertext book, as he puts it, where a lot of it is under construction. It's a weird. Right. It's a weird you feel it's always going to be an unfinished uh, structure of right. a series yeah. of, of essays yeah. that kind of fill out ideas in a space. But but that that hypertext structure gets you that ability to jump so much faster, you know, an order of magnitude faster to what is my real disagreement on this point and why does this person believe that I'm wrong here? I mean, it, it, compare it to Henry George puts out Progress and Poverty. Yeah. Marx puts out Das Kapital. This, instead of that, is more of a Wikipedia idea of how you transfer oh, yeah. around the spine of an ideology. You right. don't say, start here, read this, you're at the end. Instead, you say that people are going to jump around. Right. And, and you, you create it piecemeal, right? I think I think there's there's four, four major parts to any ideology, right? A, a real, you know, there are things that are, that are ideology-like, uh, but the four things you need are you really need step one, a understanding of reality, what reality is, a, a picture of a flawed world that you, you would like to correct. Is this what you say that this actually is, you know, it, uh, kind of philosophically, you know, would, would this be more of an ontology of like what is everything? Or it's, I, I think you it's a it's a lens of what. You know, this this starting point is this lens of how should you understand the world as being flawed, and this is this part is really easy because there's a lot of things wrong with the world, right? So this doesn't necessarily have to be dense and coherent as much as no. just a wake up call. It's just a you know a vision. Right? Sure. Okay. Um, and and then you need on the other hand a a picture of a end destination, right? A a understanding of what a world that ostensibly could exist, right? So everything you describe is by definition a tautology insofar as it, it is goal-oriented. I I think it's, um, yeah, ideologies are tautological in a sense, right? Well, I'm, I'm thinking about some people who are like, who would say my ideology, like I'm thinking like Ed Ricketts, the friend of John Steinbeck, you know, would write about his, you know, non-theology in a way that this was almost an Eastern spiritualist right, thing right. back in the, you know, yeah, back it in is, the 40s. It is, uh I don't want to say necessarily teleological, but there is a the, the the ideas you believe them because they will bring you to a point, right? Mm, okay, so you were describing where ideas are functional in that sense, right? Yeah, that that is you know one of the one of the characteristics of an ideology is that sure. it, it it ostensibly does something. Yeah, uh, and then the the other you can think of it either as well one thing you, in between these two, right? You have this you have an understanding of the world, right? 
here is how the world functions you know th- this and this is what this is what you know most of das kapital is about this is what most of progress and poverty is about is building up a set of intuitions that whether or not they're strictly true in all cases they will give you this understanding of you know what this is what uh this is how the world works this is how the world changes the certain sense of self-consistency is important here, but your world building, your explain the mechanisms. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the fourth thing, the magic thing, is you need an arrow that goes from point A to point B that goes through your world. Right. Yeah. You go, what is the, the route that takes me from this beginning position uh, to the end position, understanding that this is how the, uh, the world works, and in in general and you know uh the the cyber cultures research unit wrote about this a lot you know it's 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 hyperstition mm-hmm. right the belief that if you believe in the ideology it will make itself true yeah uh and and so the this route through is typically uh step 1 you get enough people to believe in it step 2 they make the you know they they bring about the correct policies or the correct organizations or the correct positions, and then step three those have great effects and and we we find our way to you know this this end state. Yeah, I, I think that's very similar in some ways of of me thinking of one functional way to look at kind of Christianity in the original sense as being yeah. a way of redesigning a prisoner dilemma. In order to make it so you know people never defect. So in some ways, if you really buy into it, it is about tweaking your own personal outcomes and the fact that right. if you defect, it is such a weight against yourself that anyone who is part of this, uh, you know, a society in which yeah. this is default would never defect. And in some ways, that's a purely functional way to ensure actually a better global outcome. Right, and and the thing that's interesting to me about this is that it doesn't um, it doesn't necessarily need to be the case that uh, that this actually causes people to not defect, right? In the sense that if you can convince people that this will be the outcome, right, that that they are joining this community, yeah, uh, that that you will have these, um, you know, that if everyone was fervent enough, yeah, that you would get this beautiful world. What well, is it, it, Christianity describes a kingdom of heaven which will come eventually. Yeah. No, no promises is going to work for you next week or in your lifetime. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, keep at it, guys. You know, it's it's going to work. But just just believe harder, believe more. Yeah, get more people to believe harder and more. Yeah, in some ways, I mean, in a lot of ways, if you talk about what the what the outcomes are of a global civilization, uh, I don't know if I really believe that global cooperation is possible to make sure we don't end up killing each other in a thermonuclear war. But in some ways, I do feel there is some rightness, but also rationality in saying it's good to believe, you know, against all reason that our best hope is <laughs> to to say, oh, it's going to happen quick enough. Let's just kind of go at it, you know, and you you may be mm. a fool in the short term but i don't yeah. know so the, the the i think the big question is for you know caring about henry george caring about any of this is what is the case that it will actually improve things right and and <laughs> that's a very nuts and bolts way of right, saying no, it right yeah. it's it's uh you know and and that's so so 
this is this is our this is our vector through reality you know in in the sense of producing a you know real georgist ideology i th- you know i think that one thing we've seen is that existing georgist ide- you know progress and poverty the thing that has failed there is the uh the kind of belief in this single you know the single tax uh the belief that there is a you know natural state you know that it's there's something apolitical about george's um notions right in the sense that he doesn't have the ability to face up to uh his works don't have the ability to face up to politics you know you look at marx and he has this this very developed theory of uh you know struggles of stages and henry george is just going you know and this is i think why he has such a worse reputation is it's just you adopt the one policy and it's it's all done right <laughs> yeah and so the the question is what is a what is a mode in which you can you know cuz i think the i think the description of reality uh is you know more than ever suited to our time right this this understanding of george as a figure who's going and saying you know it's it's the the land rents are being taken away you have this wedge that is being put between the the poor and the rich and i think that that resounds very well but the question of how you turn that where do you get your hyperstition right i would say, i mean a question for you is do you think it's more of a policy recommendation or a proposal for a process which will be kept up in perpetuity because i think in, in its worst and crudest form it really is a panacea in the form of something you turn and then things are good yeah. as opposed to the idea that this is more of a framework for looking at the world. Right. And in my mind, I don't know if perhaps I came in with a more crude idea when I first you know, was encountering it, but in my mind, I think it really was. It is kind of a framework. And I think that in the same kind of way uh, that I was describing like a Christian idea, it's like you plug away at it, you know, even if it fails in the short term, you know there's a correctness in the yeah. long term if you keep at it. And I, that's that's how I view it in a way that I think that's not good politics because people right. do want a nice. Right. Yeah. And, and I think I think there's a need to, in order to imagine a effective Georgism, there is a need to transform it into something which does have this potency, which does have this mimetic power, which does have this ability to, you know, to really make promises uh, in such a way as to you know, position itself as, as something, you know, there, what is, what is the job that it is doing? Right. Yeah. And so I think that the, the angle for, uh, you know, how do you, how do you justify this as something that's what it is, right. Is it's this, uh, this, this promise that when you look at, when you look at the, um, the left as it exists today and in the sense that it is able to produce a coherent argument, uh, you know, there, there was this Abolish Billionaires article in the New York Times a, a couple of weeks ago. Mm. You know, it's it's and it's it's always focused around capital. It's focused around Silicon Valley, especially as, you know, a, you know, the, the, the money is the money is flowing in. It must be coming from somewhere. The the pockets of the working people is somewhere. It's coming from there. Right? Yeah. And I think that the in the in the long run, this is a this is not the most promising form, and I think they're going to find this soon, right? You know, the the even though even though there are a couple of you know major huge firms, when you look at Uber, right? The idea is sort of that Uber has stepped in and is uh, is is producing this hypercapitalist uh, dystopia that is responsible for the devaluation of labor, 
and so on and so forth. And the, the thing where this breaks down is you look at Uber's balance sheet and they're not making any money, right? Yeah. Right. And it's, it's, there's this weird question of how are they taking capital, burning it, paying out money to drivers, providing a service, not making, making any money, and yet still ripping everyone off. They make it up on volume. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in some sense, this this kind of goes to the fact that everyone talks past each other. If you talk about kind of the libertarian end, it, everything is growing the pie and everything yeah. is a surplus that it goes through uh, completely cooperative trade. If you talk about the Marxian idea, yeah. it's the idea that all wealth is surplus value from labor, which is subsumed by a capitalist. Right. And in reality... It's a mixture of the two. Yeah. <laughs> Almost every firm that has billions is going to be some mix of the fact that, oh, you know, boy, oh, boy, oh, you know, a bunch of people liked Windows 95. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. voluntarily traded to get this hot software. And that made and it Bill- also, but it also had these network effects that, you know, were locking in. Yeah. And then Bill Gates actually was trying to extinguish open source alternatives. Right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, and and so I think I think there's a there's a avenue for Georgism as this uh, as we see the floundering of uh, this this new ideological model in helping people understand that you know the the attack on labor is in many ways more so from the bottom than from the top right. And you could say in some people, in the same sense people say there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, right. there is no ethical employment in a world in which, no... in which workers are always – it is always a buyer's market for labor. Yeah. And I think that has really always been true and will continue yeah. to be true unless something massive changes. There's no no ethical production under capitalism either. I, I think unless it is you running an Etsy on something you do in your your den or something, and I think maybe yeah. that's maybe that's ethical. <laughs> uh, I, I will say though, I think as far as looking at different ideologies, I feel like since I got into the Georgia scene. It feels like it gave me the superpower of being able to say, oh, I see how everyone's right in different ways. Right. And in some ways, it feels like, oh, yeah, I just don't really get that before. In some ways, it say, oh, everybody is not 100% wrong. I can now actually see where you're coming from, and this is why you're talking past each other. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I feel like I've always been like naturally a diplomat of saying, like, okay, you know, where is the common ground, which to someone who – is naturally cynical about this might say, oh, it's finding some crappy compromise in the middle. Yeah. Whereas I feel in a lot of ways it really can be a win-win insofar as people are just talking past each other. Yeah, one, of the, one of the things that's been weirdest about the last year on the internet is that you see what were previously the, the most boring kind of centrist uh, arguments, right? The, these are kind of the neoliberals with, you know, the, the the you know the David Brooks of the world. There has been you know obviously that many of them are still putting out terrible boring takes. Yeah, but what you do see is you see just glimmers of people tagging onto really wacky policy proposals. It's a hard world for a moderate now. Yeah. And it's like, I think if you look back to like the 80s and 90s, you realize, boy, you know, that was a, that, what a lovely world to be a moderate. <laughs> if you're just out there and you're kind of just saying like, I am, I'm post-ideological. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to be somewhat friendly. Just kind of, you know, kind of. You we're going to, we're going to split the, split the numbers in half. And every uh, time. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it worked like looked worked like a charm, and that is the world David Brooks came from. And I think that 
maybe insofar as that perhaps was a way that you actually do find better outcomes by always compromising and by default, even if you're not thoughtful about it, it yeah. kind of can work until the point that you like you've converged. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I, I, I definitely feel in a lot of ways, I don't think Georgism is particularly, I think, perfect or novel as much as it does talk about how things are different kinds of things. Right. Land is right. different than capital, you know, and you can say like this is something the categorization of what ideas are allow you to say that different things interact in different ways. Yeah. You might yeah. want this set of arithmetic works on these products. This set of arithmetic does not work on these products. Not everything <laughs> is the same, it turns out. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, people historically you talk about, you know, I, mean, I think positional goods is something kind oh, yeah. of came around in the 70s as a way of saying we can't look at growing the pie and everything and said something traditional goods and we need to make sure that we treat these separately and in a lot of ways this was a different paradigm it was not yeah. george's in name but it was the same kind of way of let's break the fact that you can't conflate everything it's an anti-conflation yeah. policy yeah. uh or, or framework as it is and i don't know i i just think it's very very convenient to say to to naturally conflate everything it's yeah yeah yeah, I think that one thing you get you get so much is this um, people people uh, this this is the 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 trade off with an ideology right is that you you have to you have to make it small enough that you can convey it very easily right yeah but you have to make it big enough that it describes the world close enough that it can actually provide some marginal insight to someone right I think it's very interesting to look at like. What is a dominant ideology? Not saying like animals are really thinking the same ways, but imagine that no. you have like, you know, you are, you know, caveman era people. Sure. Just the idea that, no, you should not just individually go out and just whack people. You need to work as a team with your tribe. Right. That is about maybe as, as coherent ideology that someone could take at the time. And that would be very innovative. You start to get tribal leaders. Oh, yeah. And just the idea of like, oh, there's a tit for tat and we need to work together as a people. Like if you didn't have that before, not just your family, not just your blood, but actually, you know, now we have a king and we can have a lot of scale of power. I don't know if they could have handled anything much deeper than that. Right. And, and the thing that's that I think people people imagine these things as being ideas first and then, you know, being trickled down to practices with every successive generation. And what I think you really see is that you see practices that evolve and the ideas evolve around them. Uh, I, I think about a lot about um, you know, the, the, we talk about memes, right? Yeah. Uh, there's this this vaguely vaguely gnostic idea of a egregore, and the thing about egregore, they're they're a lot like memes, uh, but the in the in this gnostic worldview, you think about ideas as having you know their independent, you know, one their life energy, but also volition, right? Yeah. You know, so memes, you know, they, they, they evolve over time, right? And they take on with that evolution as they move through, you know, thousands of people's minds. Uh, people, people kind of impress their desires onto the memes when they express them. And then as they find themselves in, you know, so, so the, the meme itself behaves in a very evolved way, Right. You know, people people think of a meme as, you know, an idea is is like a building block, right? Yeah. But in many senses, 
an idea, a, a sufficiently popular idea, is you know working on under all these constraints to stay alive. You know, it is this. It is this thing. Is in some cases, it's beyond human comprehension. It sounds almost some ways like polytheism, and like you have your own gods. That you know, my god is a strong god; it can take on your god. Or some I mean, ways, but but what is a what is an idea of a god but a me? Right? Yeah, exactly. When I hear that, though, it, it strikes me as as competitive. Like our you know our memes memes in the initial sense, and the fact they were kind of analogous to. Uh, you know, to genetics, we're always about it's the competition of different right. memes, and they will they will win out. Do you think that that is necessarily key to the way ideas? So one thing that I think you see is that um, you know the, the there's a there's a need um, among ideas among memes in order to stick around, they have to discourage uh, similar ideas that live nearby, right? You know. Ideas that are that are similar in some way, but maybe you know, maybe we could tweak this. Maybe we can tweak. Is, no. is that is that the same thing as the tyranny of small differences? I I think there is. It's 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 that, but for ideas in a sense, right? Is that yeah. is that ideas are much more threatened by ones that are nearby, uh, because they they fulfill similar roles in the ecosystem, right? Yeah. And so what they need to do is that in many cases, what you see is an idea will construct for itself, along with the help of some you know some useful idiot philosopher, an explanation for why it is inevitable, right? Why, why What's is an ex- What is an example of this? You know, you look at the early history of contracts, right? And, and when contracts were, were developed, it was, you know, the, the, the highlight, the high point of medieval law. Yeah. Because everything was a contract, you know? Sure. It's, and there's there's beauty to that. There's this this whole mythos you were talking earlier about, you know, this idea that every you know everything is individual choices, and the thing that has happened, uh, and and what that does is it allows for an explanation of why are we not doing this some other way? Yeah, it's because it's a contract. Contracts are the only things that exist. I feel in some sense too. Uh, if you talk about ultimately, how do you sell it to everybody? You could say if you're at the very highest level, you might say. We have a lot of useful fictions that back this up. But if you are the crudest person in society, you might say something like, well, contracts are contracts. Even cruder, you might say, well, God, you know, gives power for people to make contracts right. which are, you know, bound in, you know, kind of either something that you respect or the fact, oh, yeah, you don't break them. Eternal torment is going to come. Right, too. right. And, and if you look at law following that, right, as, as, the, as the centuries have gone on, Slowly, everything that was, you know, encapsulated as contracts has gotten peeled off. You know, labor law got peeled off. You know, marriage got peeled off. You know, and, and down the list until, you know, co- what I, contracts actually govern uh, and what contracts are allowed to govern is actually just this very narrow slice of of behavior. In, in what do you see as being the mechanism in each case? Like when something is peeled off. Does it to me the same reasons or I think you know it's it's uh, there there are different um, you really have different needs right yeah you know it you, it turns out that an employer employee relationship is not entirely you know equal handed sure right? and and the other thing that you find out is that in fact having a fully contractual elaboration of the needs of the employer is not sufficiently flexible to allow for you know the varying kinds of work that the employer may need 
It's similar like you're describing the evolution of an anarcho-capitalist utopia in reverse. Right. So far as it's, it's instead of everyone realizing, oh yeah, we can we can develop all these institutions naturally through, through different voluntary contracts. It's realization when that even has ever happened in principle, it, yeah. it falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So in that, that we started talking about this because what again? <laughs> I, I, it's that the the, inev- the seeming inevitability of contract law. Right. Yeah. People people believe in many cases that it is, uh, you know, it's a fundamental principle, right? Sure. It's because of the fund, you know, the laws of the universe are such that contracts will allow you to solve any problem. Yeah. And if you look at the history of it, you had the falling out of, uh, in one in one sense, biblical law, right? In in one sense, feudal law. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and you needed a explanation. You, you know, you you need a way for the law to maintain control, right? And what do you do that allows you to to maintain the fiction that there is nothing else you can do? The answer is you boil it down to the most simple concepts, the most seemingly inevitable concepts. Yeah. And here that's contract law. Interesting. So in some ways, what are the replacements for that in a post-contract law world? Because I mean, in some ways, you could say, like, in I mean, in the U.S., it's the Lochner era falling apart is when the the I guess ultimate truth of the contract as being right. the 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 foundation has fallen away. You know, now yeah. now there is something maybe more utilitarian is kind of the foundation. Yeah, of- I, I think I think a lot of it falls to uh, Coase's theorem and to this you know, arguably you know this misreading of Coase's theorem right sure that says if you just make everything tradable property yeah it'll all work out yes which is true in some narrow circumstances you know yeah i, I think it, i think it was even Coase himself who says that you know of course it's not the case that the theorem is true but it's always interesting to look at how right. it is not true in practice yeah yeah, yeah. and and so, and and i think that the I mean, this is this is the old the old George's line, right? Is the uh, the air lords, right? Sure. You know, once uh, you know, it's, the year is twenty fifty three, and uh, the the populace of uh, North America is wondering whether we should claw back uh, the the public domain, the west of the Rockies <laughs> air license yeah. that was sold to General Electric in twenty twenty seven. Uh, in in which they would maintain a uh, maintain breathable air and high quality air, and in exchange get to charge everyone who breathes it rent. I mean, and that is something that is a coherent outcome of some people believe that privatization of everything has good outcomes in respect to say pollution. If right. the reason that we are, you know, the reason why we have externalities is because we are dumb enough not to have anything exist inside the market. If people right. own the air, then they can sue us, and then they can stop right. pollution. They sue us, they stop the pollution, and no downsides whatsoever. And what could go wrong? Right? Yeah, exactly. And 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 the the reason that this this goes horribly wrong, uh, you know, it's I think it's a lot clearer when it come, when you pose it with regards to air than it is with regards to land. It's it's I mean it is. The idea in Coase's theorem is that there is, based upon initial entitlements, there'll never be a case in which you cannot strike a bargain. 
And in fact, if you come into an agreement in which you have nothing and the other person's everything, right. <laughs> there is no Pareto optimal thing, yeah, and, and the this improvement. Is, this is the the amazing thing to me about about the um, the the people who who trot out Coase's theorem on a on a dime is that you know you go well if that's true right following Coase's theorem uh, we should it should not if it really doesn't matter who we distribute this initial uh, these initial values to this you know, these initial shares to why don't we distribute them to everyone equally and uh, it'll it'll work out to a a reasonable uh, a reasonable situation I think, yeah. Abba Lerner said something very, very similar to that. But I mean, I, I, I think the the biggest, the biggest obvious flaw with saying like nothing could be that bad. Coase's theorem is going to automatically find your way out. Is you know, slavery should have been self-correcting. All slaves should have just bargained their way out of it. If they did, didn't like it so much, they were in a bad contract. They should have just bargained their way into freedom. You know? Yeah. Boy, they're dumb. I, I heard someone talk about in the uh, in the urbanist space saying. Uh, the reason we don't have strong tenant protections is they obviously don't want them, or else they would have negotiated for them when they got their unit in the first place. <laughs> which is that's a that's a pretty galaxy brain too. You know, right I, I, I tried to uh, I tried to get the uh, get written out of my my lease the uh, the line where I needed uh, I needed a rug in the back room. You know, sixty percent coverage of the back room with rugs, uh, and. and Lo and behold, they would not budge. Yeah, and I mean, and yeah, and that's they didn't offer me a price. <laughs> I it's it, I, I don't see, everything is infinitely granular. I, I don't believe it. Uh, but as far as I mean, that is a pretty strong reason why there is a natural constituency to say that if you were to divvy up the natural wealth of the world to everybody. There would be uh, certainly constituencies say this benefits me a lot more now because I'm currently landless and things yeah. aren't that great for me. Uh, but when you're talking about the four parts of an ideology is that you actually kind of make a promise and you can deliver it through the mechanisms deliver of it. Deliver enough to keep uh, keep control, yeah. Well, what, what do you think the strengths are of – strength or and or weaknesses of Georgism as far as that goes now? I, I think as a um, – I mean talking – Specifically about Georgism in the in the broad you know non single tax uh, angle, uh, I think the I think the, the the strongest thing going for it is that it does legitimately have the ability to produce you know some some real some real wealth and to allow that to be distributed. People can actually use this. I mean, as opposed to the Soviet Union using Marxism as a groundwork, creating systems in which you actually administer a society with good outcomes, yeah. they had to really fight against the current. Right. And right. I think if you take a weird absolute privatization outcome as, the, as groundwork and you make a society, uh, I mean, that's kind of what we're living in in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people are deeply aware of shortcomings. Yeah. Uh, when people talk about a Georgist groundwork – you can actually make some really good mechanisms and designs. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. There's there's a lot there's a lot to work with. There's a lot to work with. Yeah. Do you think it's easy to sell though? Because I think a lot of people say it's like, right. hey, it's all about land. And then right. I think this people is... are like, land. I I'm I'm more concerned about factory. I'm more concerned. Right. And about and the um, you know, actually, this is this is the most interesting part to me is the uh, uh, the ongoing failure. You know, you look around the world, and. If you you ask someone what is you know the 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 dominant form of uh, the dominant ideology has been this pairing of this privatization of uh, 
you know this this Kosian reality that we've been talking about with uh, a welfare state, right? Sure. And the thing that's interesting is that you go, where has the welfare state worked? Great, you know, in this combination. I mean, is it, are in that are you implying that people would respond Sweden or something? People, I mean, typically you get Norway, right? Sure. Norway is number one, uh, and Norway is not really a great example in that they have you know the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. Sure. Right? Um, and Sweden, Sweden does all right, um, and there are a couple a couple really good ones. But most of the most of the top of the list, you do get a lot of natural resources that are going into it. Mm. And so I think I think there's a there's an intuition here in the sense that the 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 one of the insights that you can pull from a Georgist worldview is that creating a welfare state where the cost of the goods uh, have to you know the the goods that are re- that are required to bring people to a you know the point where their basic needs are met uh, those are in a sense, you know, they're a lot of them are literally land, uh, but they're owned beforehand. Creating a creating a working welfare state is like it's like trying to trying to suffocate yourself, right? You you pass out before you mm. succeed, right? Is, is it because it doesn't naturally find a robust point? Because I mean, like if you talk about like for example, public housing in Sweden, there yeah. there is kind of a backlash that happens with more market oriented. Uh, folks, you could say it's a right-left dichotomy. You can say whatever, but in some sense, you it's like, boy, you know, we can make very valid reasons for why, uh, you know, municipal operations of these places is not as efficient as if you find owner-operators right. maintain their units. Therefore, privatize everything, and then you kind of move. You know, the great conflation yeah, of, and, of land and and building moves in one big chunk again. And I think this is this is one of the underrated virtues of Hong Kong, Singapore. Is is that they they do operate Hong Kong less so because it's uh, the the land land bidding processes are you know so corrupt. But Singapore, what one thing that they've done an exceptionally good job at is contracting out the building of uh, units and contracting up out the production in a way that limits the amount of upside that those builders get from. Uh, the the land value itself, as far as like principal agent problem and solving it, it they they tend to have excellent mechanisms design. Right. If you talk about actually operations, they tend to have more as opposed to Hong Kong's public housing model tends to be kind of we build it, you be in there, end of story, yeah. blah blah blah. And I mean, I think uh, Singapore tends to be like okay, let's actually try to have more of a system in which you maintain your unit. We're gonna have condos in which you invest in, yeah. but we are ultimately the ground lesser of it. Right. And boy, I mean, if you were reading Henry George, that you can't do much better than that. Yeah, yeah, it's really true. And and also, if you look at the outcomes, it just tends to work really well. Yeah. So I just to just to jump back to this point though, what I think the uh, the real claim I'm making is that if you is that you you find yourself stuck in a sense, right? Where uh, the U.S. has done really a, a very good job of you know producing growth, yeah. right? So you you look at the share of the stock market gains worldwide that come from the U.S. and have come from the U.S. over the last thirty years, and it's uh, it's disproportionate. Uh, and the 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 question is, could you have done that without producing the kinds of social outcomes that we've seen in the U.S. And I think the answer is that 
and and then you look at on the other hand uh France is a great example they've uh they've really held the line on their on their social safety net they've really held the line on workers protections and and you look at the um you know the the yellow vest movement there is a uh a failure you know a failure to produce jobs for the youth there's a failure to um the, you know the the you also see in a sense people being squeezed in this in this same way despite you know very different policy choices it seems to lack the same dynamism of new firm development in, oh, yeah. in all in all sorts of ways. It very much reflects of you have you have so much divvied up as opposed to yeah, yeah the U.S. is everything's growing. You know, grab your grab your share and let's let's ride this dragon. Uh, and they're very different. You know, very different outcomes, and each each have their <laughs> failure modes. Obviously, yeah, and and I think I think this is the um, you know if you look globally at who has been winning. You know who has been producing growth over the the last thirty years that has benefited, you know, people on the ground. It is uh, the PRC. It is uh, South Korea. It's um, you know uh, other mostly mostly uh, you you have Kazakhstan in there too, but mostly mm. it's East Asia, right? And part of the people people I think don't realize right the. I mean, China is the the best example. the 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 social safety net there is is non-existent, right? Yeah. Uh, and yet, you don't have in in many areas. In many areas, you don't have the same level of, you know, you don't have quite the quite the the terror that you would expect, uh, you know, if you were to to remove the social safety net in the U.S. Right? Even on 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 much lower incomes, right? Even after uh, official purchasing parity terms you don't have anything quite so gruesome uh as what you see poverty in the u.s looking like and i see are you implying the same sort of way uh that henry george in the book was implying that in a more primitive society which in his case was the the gold rush san francisco land you see less inequity uh, as far as the floor goes, than in New York City at the time, because New York City, if you truly have nothing in New York City and you just want to get by, yeah. you have it. it the, the cost of living is obviously greater, yeah. but just what it's really the cost of just being landless. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I and I think I, th- I think that's that to this day in some ways is true, right? Which is I a, a bold statement, I'm aware, uh, but I also think it's a matter of that. I think that the the real driving engine of the Chinese economy over the last thirty years has been, in a sense, uh, either land sales or, you know, the, obviously there's there's industry that plays into it, but you have a much, you know, I I think of it, people people have all kinds of phrases for the Chinese economy, but the one that I like to use is Marx Reaganism, mm. right? Which which sounds like a, a contradiction in terms, sure, uh, but. But it is Chinese bureaucrats, especially because you know Deng Xiaoping, when he was, uh, you know, when they were they were redoing this ideology after uh, Mao shuffled off the the mortal coil, uh, you know, restructuring things, there was this big you know Thatcherite influence. But and and some of that did get picked up, but and and so you have you have this very strange strange phenomenon of ostensibly Communist Party officials. Uh, railing against the dangers of the Western social safety net, right? Yeah. Uh, which, 
on the one hand, it seems it seems comical, but on the other hand, I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, they they have done so much to produce their uh, produce their revenue uh, for the operations of the country from on the basis of land, on the basis of natural resources, on the re- basis of uh, other other venues that are not uh, not strictly taxation. And I would say also you have to look at the ability for uh, Chinese urban areas to grow in a way that actually reflects optimal kind of firm development. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the, the kind of traditional uh, socialist way to say is competition is ineffective because you're always bashing each other's heads and you yeah. can't coordinate. And it, like most things, that's partially true, partially wrong. In some yeah. ways, you could say that you actually reach a nice equilibrium in some sort of idealized firm production and everyone is actually competing, but it actually all works. But then again, if you're trying to build a subway, it authentically really, really is counterproductive to have a bunch of competition yeah. and people butting each other's heads. Uh, and I think that that's a major reason why we do such a bad job at trans in the U.S. and such a great job in China. Yeah, yeah, and and I I think I think that you can think of um, some of the some of the mantra, uh, and it's this is this is less true these days. Um, Especially in uh, Beijing, Xi Jinping is trying to—he's uh, trying to pull out part of the parts of the city into other places. But on the whole, you have something you might think of as manifest density, right? That's funny. It's—it's it's like the 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 route towards progress is, you know, more more closer together, taller, and and you know, and and with greater concentrations, right? I mean, it's if you can ask, ur- like urban academics would say, "Oh yeah, make me dictator for a day." I would make it like this, and China actually has the ability to, to, to take them up on that. <laughs> yeah, and it it works. It it's worked pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it. it you, yeah, you can definitely say there are ways it works in comparison to the failures we see here in the Bay Area. Yeah. In in commuting patterns, blah blah blah. My, one of my one of my favorite anecdotes here is. Uh, the the area with Guangzhou, Hong Kong, and uh, and Shenzhen, uh, it's a, it's around the same size uh, as uh, as the Bay Area, right? The the California Bay Area, you know, and, and it's it's referred to as the you know the Greater Bay Area uh, in in the in the parlance, and if you had the San Francisco Bay Area, you know the the nine county region at the same density as uh, the slightly larger Greater Bay Area, uh, you would be able to fit, uh, I believe, 110 million people in it. Yeah, it's. it's <laughs> but but uh, yeah, and the, the only problem is I don't want to see the Hong Kongification of Palo Alto. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, personally, I'm the I'm I I think I would love to see Hong Kong in Palo Alto. It'd be amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Palo Alto is the is the regional center, right? It is. <laughs> It, it should be, uh, you know, it's make it a hundred floors tall, and uh, it, and we're getting somewhere. And in some sense, you do see the fact that you know, kind of, uh, you it, it's a package deal because of the lack of any kind of cooperative ability to densify our places like this. Right, there is much more of an appetite here than almost any other place of people from transit things saying it's like now I am you know all in on socialism 
because I'm seeing the failures of capitalism in the way that this is right, running right. here. Uh, and it's it's kind of funny to say like you know, Hong Kong, you know, is kind of a none of the, all the above, <laughs> but it's <laughs> it's certainly uh, it's certainly not possible here for a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so as far as I mean. I guess you can say by your methods, your prototyping is continuing to run the the Georgist meme Facebook group. Is that you know, did I, you find that to be a a, a uh, you know the the best path forward as far as spreading a message? I think I think there's a um, there's a need for it, right? Um, and we've had we've had some very interesting uh, people joining it. Actually, we, we only have I think we're at 520 people, but one of those people but, is Donald Shoop. But every one of them is going to start their own band. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. One of them is Donald Shoup, who, who wrote The uh, High Cost of Free Parking. And you also have uh, Noah Smith, who is a very well-read commentator. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it, does, it does seem like there is an interest in, uh, you know, there is an elite interest in uh, – Finding these these so you might you might think of them as dank memes, right? And I, if Facebook is a weird kind of opt-in membership. Not, I mean, I'm seeing uh, Noah Smith is always in the, the Twitter sphere, but he's in a growing set of people with all sorts of different backgrounds. Oh yeah, who I feel in proportion to how thoughtful and open-minded they are, people just naturally gravitate towards land value tax. Yeah. it's almost like it's it's kind of almost spooky in a way of saying like it's like you see a person who says like oh it doesn't seem like they are figuring out how to think on how they know they should think if people yeah. are opening themselves up it's like it's almost as a rule you can expect that they have already <laughs> been, yeah, been yeah i i think i think of what uh what you know proselytizing georgianism as you know lobbying for lobbying for gravity right yeah you know this is the the famous George's famous line you know if there was some interest that found that that the laws of gravity were unprofitable they would they would find a way to convince you that they weren't you know around right yeah and so it is a you know in the same sense a downhill battle right if the if there is that ability to produce coherence it's it's just so much easier and I mean, uh, yeah, this, the the see the cat moment is the idea that it's there is many stories, and I think it's very interesting. If uh, it's a Rendezvous with Destiny, Eric Goldman, uh, it's a book of the progressive movement, and uh, he was talking about different progressive figures, and so many people actually had kind of a road to Damascus moment when they're handed a copy of Henry George oh, yeah. and read it. And with some people, it actually clicked. It like changed their lives, yeah. which is a very rare thing when it tends to work in that respect. <laughs> and uh, and I feel like in so many ways, it's kind of funny. Like what actually changed the world? It's a bunch of you know twenty year old mooks in uh, D.C. who are like at think tanks, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. And if you get the right person and the right person right, talking right. in their sphere, then realize it's like, oh yeah. No one really cares about the ideological founding of the policy. You just need to maybe, maybe find a few incredibly weird people off the deep end. Yeah, <laughs> close and, and this is and this is what what makes me, you know, it's it's such a it's such a fringe thing, right? But uh, you know, the the you you only need one really dank meme to get <laughs> someone, right? And you you were you were you were converted in a way uh, through Numtot, right? Oh yeah, yeah. This was this was my um, there was there was it was actually I think the same no it was it was a, I 
there was a there was a uh, a flame war on a thread that I was on, and someone came in and they went. Karl Marx was a stooge for the landlords. Okay, and I went, what? And and the just the uh, so that short circuited your brain. Like I was Star like, Trek or something. What yeah. what are they talking about? Sure. And I go and I I read up on Henry George to you know to go tell them why this is a ridiculous idea. Yeah. And then I keep reading and I go, hold on. Looks like they're right. You know? Yeah. And that's kind of a. It's a spooky moment, right? Yeah, where we're normally if you if you try to follow through on internet comic comments, they don't normally take you to a very productive place. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you were you were just challenged on this. I mean, at that point, do you think you ever heard the name before? Or I, you know, I there there were there have been I, I think uh, you know there were three or four people I understand on Numtots. I I later met uh, someone who was friends with these these trolls and they would just you know saturday night go into a thread start arguing about henry george right yeah <laughs> and i i don't you know, i personally don't have you know the the uh the the endurance for trolling that this requires but it's you know in outcomes i think it's a, an incredibly effective you know uh sort of discourse it's very i mean i feel myself on twitter i think it's working through a state like that, I feel like I would be more in a case like any random account. Let me let me try to talk to them about this, and then yeah. in certain realize you realize okay, you have to be more strategic. But on different levels, it's like it's like advancing through some sort of like weird army of ideas. You need yeah. the foot soldiers, and you need <laughs> the people who are more nuanced and know the right in the perfect salesman to find. It's like I know what you are, I know what you want, I know what you lack, and I can give that to you. And yeah, it's yeah. yeah, and 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 the other interesting thing is that so much of it is, you know, not uh, not retail uh, ideological warfare, but it is, you know, targeted, right? Yeah. And so this is the the strangest thing about being on Twitter.com is that I'm, you know, I'm ju- I'm this guy, right? I have no formal training in say economics, but if I produce the right words in the right order, yeah. Sometimes I'll go and and I'll see a, a fave on my tweet and I'll see someone's followed me and I'll click through. And those are those are the guys in DC, right? Yeah, who are who are putting <laughs> out the policy? Exactly. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I think you were the first. You you coined George Pilling, I think, right? I either I coined it or someone I know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's it's a very funny thing because you kind of like uh, like you see somebody, it's like, oh, I think this person could become George Pilled. And yeah. it's very weird how much it could be that case. And in some cases, there's kind of like white whales out there. Like Matt Brunig, I think, is one of yeah. those. It's yeah. like, boy, you know, he is, in some sense, he is, uh, I think, a, a bit slippery insofar he has the de- debate team mindset. And when you have the debate team mindset, you're always going to want to win the argument and not actually yeah, open yourself yeah. up. Everyone wants to change the world. No one wants to change themselves. Uh, and the same thing, but like you, you slowly wear away at somebody <laughs> and you could actually make a bit of a difference, especially if you kind of say like, I think in the, I think the best thing in the world is usually when you try to, in good faith, work with somebody, yeah. you learn as much from them as you do going into it. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. It's, 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 I think one of the, uh, you could say Twitter is, is ruining the world. You could say that it is ruining the discourse. But I think four of weird, freakish 
minority of people, it is actually leading to a robust way of people growing themselves in ways that yeah. have never been possible yeah. and, before. And it's it's this, um, you know, I think I think some of it is that it it denies power to individual people, right? But it empowers, you know, individual people who are in power. Uh, you know, you you write on the opinion page of the New York Times. Yeah. You lose you lose this this hold that you had, but who it, what it really empowers is these rogue egregores, right? Yeah. These rogue memes that just have a real good in. Yeah. Right. And wouldn't have gotten the time of day otherwise. And in some, I mean, and we are seeing, you know, the rise of Georgism on that side. We're seeing the rise of Flat Earth on that front. Oh, yeah. And maybe you take the good with the bad, but in some sense, they reach different targets. And I think in some sense, it worries me that we're seeing kind of the the fringe conspiracy, I guess the small-minded folks who kind of fall for this. Boy, they are getting kind of crazier than ever before in a way that I think is authentically troubling, but you are kind of seeing the other segment going just the same way that people are like, oh, of course, you know, I'm a a neo-fusionist of these three different obscure thinkers of 200 years ago. This is, uh, there's a a great meme about... um about the kids, right? The, the Gen Z. There, there are two. There are two kinds of uh, Gen Z kid. You know, one is Fortnite, Burger King. Uh, you know, Yeet. Right? Yeah. And the other one is I am a neo anarcho. <laughs> you know, Xeno Praxinist. Yeah. And I am aligned with the Fourth International Posadist. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and it it just. You know, there, there was a time when it was not a normal part of someone's adolescence to go through the Wikipedia pages for twenty, <laughs> you know, of twenty-seven different niche ideologies, yeah, and believe all of them fervently for a week, right? Yeah, and and now that's that's just this for a certain set of people that's just the normal a normal part of growing up, yeah, and I think I really think that the uh, the you know. The sophistication of the of the masses of of you know the political leaders is is in in the next thirty years it's going to go through the roof. Yeah, I, I think if you look in the late sixties or something, which is probably the most experimental time for youth rethinking things, you would find I think a large combination of social versus ideological spectrum. And there would be, I think, almost by definition, a cult of personality on one guy who's read a book. Yeah. You'd have a certain Maoist cult with a certain flavor, and most people didn't really care about it. And I think in time, how many of those Maoists just gradually fed out of it because they really didn't have – it didn't have the hooks into them. Right, yeah. And, yeah. and I think right now you're seeing authentic weirdos <laughs> who are really going to go off. So uh, is, is, is that is – that, is, it sounds like an optimistic view of the future. Yeah, you know, you yeah. know it's, it's, it's strange to describe, you know, so many people reading Ted Kaczynski this way. But I, I really do think that in the broad view, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out to be really good. Yeah, I can't prove his methods, but let's hope for the, let's hope for the best. I, and that's, I mean, not to, to put one final completely off the road. I mean, that I think is why I believe in nonviolence is because I believe it allows us to get weirder. <laughs> because <laughs> it's you know it's like uh, it's like putting on boxing gloves. You know, you're not gonna take their eye out or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so any, any final thoughts before we just wrap up right here? Let's uh, let's wrap it up. Yeah. Well, well, thanks so much for being here, Chris. Thanks for having me. We have been talking to Chris Beiser about Georgism as an ideology 
and the wall of memes today. You can find his meme page on Facebook. George's memes for land value taxation teens. This is a presentation of Casey Sure Stanford. You can find all previous episodes at the website, seethecat.org.